Her dad used to do that every time he preached. Don't you, those of you who've been around for a while remember that, don't you? Of course, that phrase is used by copyright, and Amy gets a few cents every time I say that. So. <laughs> Several years ago, both Tom Buck and Spencer Travers told me after I'd preached a series of messages inspired by my time at Beaver Lake in northwest Arkansas that they hoped that the elders would send me there more often or that they enjoyed what my time at the lake inspired. I don't know if they were trying to get rid of me. Maybe that's what they were really doing. But what I'm hoping will happen this morning after today's message is that these brothers, or perhaps maybe some more of you, might encourage the elders to send me to the mountains more often, even if it's just to get rid of me. I've told some of you that the times that I spend in the Rocky Mountains on vacations with my wife, Barb, feed my spirit in a way that few other things can. I absolutely love being in the mountains. I love the scenery. I love the majesty. I love the colors. I love the skies. I love the cool air compared to the 100 degrees that we're experiencing back here in Tulsa. I check the temperature almost every day that I'm in the mountains, and I rejoice that it's 25 to 30 degrees cooler where we are in Colorado. I love the feeling of being on top of the world. I love to ponder God's amazingly artful and beautiful creation. What an amazing artist that our Creator God truly is. This year I saw a scene that I think it would be really incredible to be a part of, preaching to a group on a mountaintop. Let me tell you about that experience, although I do fear that if I was preaching to a group on a mountaintop, there'd be a lot more distractions than there are based on what you're seeing behind me today. Barb and I were hiking up a mountain pass, and it was uh, above 12,000 feet. It was a place called Cottonwood Pass. Anybody ever been to Cottonwood Pass? Some of you have. It's a cool spot. And there was a large group of high school-aged girls. They were single file in a trail, and they were gaining on us old folks, me and Barb, in the thin air. So we stepped aside to let them pass, but they kind of kept coming. So we went up a little bit different trail, kind of above where I got that picture. Turns out they were the first of a few hundred youth from a church in Columbia, Missouri. And that they'd been coming to this point each year for a few years with their youth group. So we get to the top of the mountain, and here's the youth pastor preaching to his group of kids. And then the kids scattered around on this mountaintop after he was done, 12,600 feet up, to read their Bibles and write in their journals. Now this is a true mountaintop experience, huh? And then vacation's over, and you head home, and the mountains change scenes as you leave central Colorado. Still very pretty. It eases the pain slowly of you having to leave, and you enjoy a few more hours of mountain vistas. But eventually, you leave the mountains in your rearview mirror, and you're back on the plains. Now, the flatlands can certainly be beautiful in their own way, but as I experienced the mountaintop and then came back down below, I began to think about what we are going to talk about this morning. Why do we find such nature experiences so enjoyable? Why does this scenery give us a measure of pleasure? 
What is it about such purple mountains' majesty above the fruited plains that is so inspiring to us? It's inspiring to pretty much everybody, not just to us as believers, agnostics and atheists and pot smokers. They all like the mountains. There's a lot of New Age spirituality and weirdness in these mountain towns and rural and wilderness areas too. The mountains are a spiritual place because there's something innately appealing to all of us about what agnostics and atheists might just simply refer to as nature, and even we believers call it that, but we Christians might prefer to call it God's creation. Think about this. Those of us who believe in a creator God believe that nature isn't, after all, natural at all. Think about that. It's supernatural in the sense that it was created by God out of nothing. Even if you believe that God created, but God used natural forces to create the world we see, he still created those natural forces. And he created the ingredients for creation. Pleasure and enjoyment is our byproduct of this. And it's not a bad thing. Pleasure is not a bad thing according to the word of God. We read in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word pleasures is related to pleasant places. We see this a few verses earlier in Psalm 16, verse 6. The pleasure that the psalmist had begun in this life will continue into its fullness in the world to come. And there we begin to see a key element in our theme this morning. Why do these scenes give us such pleasure, such enjoyment? Again, it's because we have this innate, built-in understanding of the glory and the majesty of God in the present and in our eternal future. And these mountains, so much bigger than us, give us just a glimpse of that majesty, His power and His greatness. But it's just a glimpse, and it's not meant to satisfy us completely. That's because they're meant to point us to something, something far greater than what we can see today. This idea that our appreciation of God's creation is built into us and that this appreciation is just an introduction to our great God is seen in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. We can get a glimpse of who God is. We can get a glimpse of His power, of His divine nature, through what He has made. And while He's made so much more than the mountains, clearly His creation is a part of what reveals His power and His glory. But it's not meant to be a full revelation of God. And the pleasure we derive from the beauty of His creation is not meant to be the end of it. It's not an end in itself. Just as His creation is meant to point unbelievers to God, it's not enough in and of itself to bring us to a saving faith. That's why we need to be His witnesses. God's creation is meant to point believers to a deeper appreciation of Him. 
in his presence is fullness of joy, the psalmist wrote. And clearly, we can experience the presence of God in the midst of his creation. But again, it's not meant to be the ultimate satisfaction. Ultimately, we can be in the presence of the Lord anywhere. Because scripture also tells us that his glory fills the earth. We sang that this morning, not just the mountains. And that means everywhere, the flat plains too, and the majestic mountains, the vast oceans, and the creek in your neighborhood. The most impressive structure on earth are your own living room. We must measure our pleasure. We have to compare and contrast. Remember that old thing you had to do with essays, compare and contrast this and that? We have to compare and contrast earthly pleasures with kingdom and spiritual pleasures. And we need to see them for what they are. And by God's measure, his creation on earth is just a glimpse, just a foretaste of what we'll have in eternity. And it's even just a foretaste of what we already have in him today. It's not meant to satisfy. It's designed to make us thirst for more, more of him, more of his glory, more of himself. The entire natural world bears witness to God through its beauty, complexity, its design, and its usefulness. But that's not enough to save us from our sin. What kind of God does nature reveal? Nature shows us a God of might, intelligence, and intricate detail, a God of order and beauty, a God who controls powerful forces. That is general revelation. Through special revelation, the Bible that is, and the coming of Jesus, we learn about God's love and forgiveness We learn about the promise of eternal life. God has graciously given us many sources that we might come to believe in him. John Wesley wrote, Our pleasures here are transient and momentary, but those at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore, for they are pleasures of immortal souls in the enjoyment of an eternal God. And there's the crux of the problem for us. The world, and sometimes even Christians, looks to these momentary and transient pleasures as our source of satisfaction, our ultimate source of joy. Not just mountain vacations, folks. How about food? We enjoy food. We need food. And food is among God's good blessings to us. So is everything created by God. It tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. But when we don't receive these good gifts as gifts from our creator and provider God, we begin to see the consequences of when we don't do that. As we learn a few verses later, in the passage of Romans we read a few minutes ago. This is in Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So we can go to the mountains. We can enjoy them. We can find pleasure in them. And then we can thank, well, I don't know, maybe we thank the natural evolutionary forces that made them. Maybe we thank the universe or the cosmos or whatever. Or we maybe aren't thankful at all. We just find pleasure in those things alone. But when 
we do that, what Romans tells us we're doing in that case is not honoring God as God, not honoring him as the creator of all that we can see, not honoring him as the one to whom we should be giving thanks for the things that we're enjoying. We're making our enjoyment of these things the ultimate pleasure and end in themselves rather than making God ultimate and making God our all in all. So what's the result of that line of thinking, that lack of thankfulness, that lack of not honoring God as God? It tells us our thinking becomes futile, empty, worthless, vain, lacking any real wisdom. That's what futile means in this context here. And more troubling still, Paul says about unbelievers that their foolish hearts are darkened. So let me say that I am a nature lover. I love the wonder and the glory of the natural world. Lots of others love nature too, but they love it differently than I do. They sometimes even love it to the point of worshiping the creation rather than the one who made it all. Romans 1.25 tells us they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So while I am a nature lover, nature serves to be a brightly illuminated direction sign to God, the creator. That's what it is for me. There are many things besides nature that we can find pleasure in. But all of these things, good gifts of God, can be just as easily turned into idols in our lives. Things that we worship instead of worshiping the one who made these things. In that, we have turned God's gifts, God's good gifts, into sinful pleasures. There are licit and illicit pleasures for Christians and unbelievers alike. I find great pleasure in a lot of things. Really, the best part for me about being on vacation is the time that I have alone with my wife. It's a wonderful time. I treasure that time. But I cannot make my wife the source of my pleasure. She's God's good gift to me. I find tremendous joy in the Bible Bowl kids. I'll start my 23rd year as Coach Bill in five weeks, and I'm still doing it because I treasure the relationship I have with the Bible Bowl kids. I find great pleasure in my relationships with families here at TCF. For example, this one. I derive great pleasure from certain foods. I love sports, playing some, watching others. But none of these things can become ultimate in my life. All of these things are God's good gifts to point me to him as my source and to point me to him as the ultimate giver of every good gift and to point to a greater joy and pleasure with him in eternity. Think about it. We have these relationships with spouses, with family, with friends, with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. These relationships can truly be very fulfilling. They can be even satisfying in a significant way. But they point us to the relationship that we can have with our great God who redeemed us and made for us a way to have true relationship and fellowship with him. We have wonderful foods to enjoy, but this earthly, sustaining, and enjoyable nutrition 
is only a hint of what we have when we partake of Jesus, who said, I am the bread of life. We have his creation to enjoy, all he's made, the mountains, the oceans, the stars in the heavens that he named one by one. But this is just a glimpse, too, of the new heavens and the new earth that await us in his eternal kingdom. C.S. Lewis addressed this idea in a message he brought once called The Weight of Glory. It was 75 years ago, just last month, that he brought this sermon at a church in Oxford. There's a lot of insight in this message into our relationship with our Maker. And most of you have probably heard a quote or two from this, and you'll maybe recognize some of this as we move along. Let me hit just a few key highlights related to our theme today. First of all, desire for pleasure is not a bad thing. Lewis said that most people today would identify unselfishness as the highest virtue rather than love. But that means that something negative has replaced something positive, as unselfishness is foregoing good for ourselves, while love is securing good for others. Unselfishness sees self-denial as an end in itself, such that it is bad to desire and hope for the enjoyment of our own good. Love sees self-denial as containing within it an appeal to desire, since it is good to desire and hope for the enjoyment of our own good. The ethic of negating desire comes from philosopher Immanuel Kant and the Stoics, whereas the ethic that appeals to the desire for our own good comes from the New Testament. The former says that our desires are too strong. The latter says that our desires are too weak. The problem is not that we have too much pleasure, but that we are far too easily pleased with those things that are second best. The idea here is that his, these desires aren't bad in and of themselves. Think about this. Is it really true that our eternal destiny is so much better than we can ever enjoy or find pleasure in while we're here on this earth? The Apostle Paul says that it is. We looked at this yesterday in the memorial service for Linda's mom. Paul wrote this to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. If that's true, and I believe it is, if our eternal home is so much better than any good, any pleasure, any joy, on which we can fix our desires here on earth, then any of those other things are truly subpar. They are a poor substitute, an inadequate alternative, bearing at the very best only a symbolic relationship to that which will truly satisfy. I know someone who has a tattoo that says, follow your bliss. Apart from Christ, that's simply godless hedonism. Scripture reveals that our only true bliss is in Christ. So if we were to see the phrase on this tattoo at, at its best in a biblical context, this phrase would mean, follow Jesus. He's your only bliss. He's your only hope. He's your only satisfaction. Our only true pleasure is in Him. Our only true 
satisfying, lasting joy is in a right relationship with the one who redeems us. C.S. Lewis said, Someday we will put on the glory of creation, or rather, that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. So nature is the image or symbol that the Word directs us to see. For example, in Psalm 76, verse 4, we read, Glorious are you, referring to God, more majestic than the mountains. And in Psalm 95, verses 3 and 4, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His also. Of course, the mountains aren't the only thing in God's creation that declare the glory of God. So does all of creation in its own way. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And then get this, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So creation is pouring out speech, words, impressions, thoughts about God. Isn't that an amazing thing to consider? Johannes Kepler, the great 17th century astronomer, best known for discovering the laws of planetary motion, said this. He said, the undevout astronomer is mad. (laughs) Don't you love that? Think about that. The idea is that it's crazy. It's foolish when you see the handiwork. You see the artistry, the symmetry, the beauty of God's creation to think of anything but the Creator. It's mad. How can you see these things and not believe in God? Again, quoting C.S. Lewis in context from his message, The Weight of Glory. This is the quote some of you have probably heard parts of before. He said, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. We eat, drink, and are merry apart from anything to do with our relationship with the one who made us. We don't acknowledge the source of our pleasures here on earth, and we make these pleasures ultimate, not recognizing or not acknowledging that rightly used, all of these pleasures point us to the one person, to the one person, the King of Kings. Are we truly satisfied in him? We can thank him for the glimpses of his glory that he gives us in creation. We can thank him for the hints of his love that he gives us in relationships. We can thank him for the picture of his total provision that he gives us in our lives. But in our spirits, we hunger for more. As those who are in Christ, and even those who are unbelievers, we hunger for more. And that's the point. That's the point. Only The living God satisfies our souls. Yes, the mountains feed my soul, but only God truly satisfies. 
the psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, verse 1, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So the psalmist here is describing his thirst with an example from nature. Thirsting, that's a very natural thing, isn't it? He's thirsting for flowing streams. That's something that's found in nature, isn't it? But it's God himself and also the worship of God that the psalmist truly longs for. The deer's need for water to survive is a picture of us, all of us. We need God. We need him daily. We need him constantly to survive. It's a need as basic as our physical thirst. As the life of a deer depends upon water, so our life depends completely on God. The great Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren wrote this, no man is made to be satisfied from himself. And I would add, nor are we made to find our total satisfaction with anything in this life. For the stilling of our own hearts, for the satisfying of our own nature, for the strengthening and joy of our being, We need to go beyond ourselves and to fix upon something external to ourselves. We are not independent. None of us can stand by himself. No man carries within him the fountain from which he can draw. If a heart is to be blessed, it must go out of the narrow circle of its own individuality. And if a man's life is to be strong and happy, he must get the foundation of his strength somewhere else than in his own soul. Next time I'm in the pulpit, which will be two weeks from this morning, as a follow-up from this morning's message, we're going to think together about a literal biblical mountaintop experience and what it means to us. And by way of introduction, perhaps to get you thinking about where we're going to go with this, I want you to think about some of the best experiences of your life, where you were, when you were there, whether literally on a mountaintop or just emotionally or spiritually on a real genuine high. Let's think about the purposes of these experiences. Let's think about why God ordains some of these experiences for us from time to time. And let's think about how we're supposed to think about these kinds of experiences in the light of what Bruce Clutter once called in a sermon, the dailiness of life. It'll be Measure Your Pleasure Part 2 Sermon from the Mount, two weeks from today. That's in two weeks. But a few closing thoughts for this week. Mountaintop experiences can help us to learn to embrace the smallness of who we are and to marvel in the vastness of who God is. We measure our pleasures because earthly pleasures can no longer take the place of knowing God and being known by him. We are then both satisfied and dissatisfied at the same time. We begin on a path toward thirsting for more of God, wanting to understand more clearly the character and the nature of God. When we encounter the reality of God, just a glimpse of it, the outcome is almost always, should almost always be true worship. It should cause us to worship. In closing this morning, I want to consider the related message in a song. We're going to watch this video here in just a second. I've heard this song for years. Some of you will recognize it. 
I often thought it would be a good closing because of its main theme, and today it really fits the idea that we're far too easily pleased. Why? Because in all the good things God has created, created for us to legitimately enjoy, okay? We're not talking about illicit pleasures. We're talking about licit, legal, things that we can enjoy, right? He has created nothing that gives us more pleasure than himself, than his presence, than his revelation of himself in his word. So when we consider this idea of measure your pleasure, let's chart the pleasures that God has given us in his wonderful creation. And let's recognize that it's so far below. It's way down here. And his is way up here higher than I can begin to reach. It's only a hint of what we can truly enjoy in his presence. And it's only a minuscule, minuscule representation of what we'll have with him in eternity. Let's prayerfully consider these things while we watch and listen. Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who dwelleth on high? Who is like unto the Lord our God, who dwelleth on high, who dwelleth on high? You dwell in glory. Heavens are your home. You began the story and made your beauty known. You created nothing that gives me more pleasure than you, and you won't give me something. Yeah.